The next 25 years in the power and energy industry will be driven by global efforts to decarbonize the sector, powered by clean energy policies, new technologies, and empowered customers. Welcome to the Smart Energy International Podcast, your guide to innovation and trends in the global power and energy sectors. I'm your host, Claire Volkvain. Join me in part two of my conversation with technology evangelist Kevin O'Donovan and Inlet Europe content director Areti Taridimou. Kevin, we ended our previous conversation with the important role that hydrogen is going to play. But you mentioned that you think there's another technology that will dominate the next 25 years in the industry. What's that going to be? To me, the the big game changer potentially out there is nuclear fusion. This is one of those things that's a little bit like the Holy Grail. So can I ask you to elaborate a little bit on, on why you think that not only is this going to be the go-to technology, but that it's also going to be at a point where we can utilize it on on mass. I don't think it's going to be the holy grail. And I don't think we can look at fusion and say, do you know what? We don't need to do anything with renewables and energy storage and hydrogen or carbon capture or anything else. We just wait for fusion to come online in 2040, 2050, and it's job done. I think we have to take multiple bets. I am fascinated around fusion in terms of on the assumption we get it working, it can be a game changer. You know, it's four million times more efficient than fossil fuels, four times more than nuclear. Um, It does not have a lot of the side effects of a nuclear fission, which we have today in terms of large amounts of radioactive waste, non-proliferation problems. You know, it's what powers the sun, right? So it's about fusing atoms together. Now, the technology needed to get this done in terms of getting plasma up to 100 million degrees Celsius, storing it in a reactor, getting stable reactions, and, and, and. The physics and the mechanics and the material science involved in this thing are, you know, way above my pay grade. And it's hard, right? It's never been done before. But I live here in the south of France, a couple of hundred kilometers uh, west of me is ITER, the International Thermonuclear Project with the European Union, Mm -hmm. US, China, Russia, Korea, you name it, a who's who. And the current projections from the EU Commission and whatever is that they are still hoping that they will have a first, let's say, reactor up and running at scale around 2035. That's not that far away. And commercial viability of fusion reactors sometime in 2060, 2070. Now, this is back to Areti's point. You're you're back to kind of the big central nuclear plant. It just happens to be nuclear fusion. That has some implications around we still need a transmission grid and, and, and. So I don't think it's the silver bullet. But if we get fusion working in the next 25 years, I think that will probably have the biggest impact on everything from geopolitics to reliance on some other fuel to getting fuel to the people everywhere else in the world that want fuel and may not have renewables and stuff. So I I, I live in hope, but it's hard, right? It, it's oh. never been done before. Yeah, I mean, this is this is definitely the one that everybody talks about, as 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 you say, as being the game changer. The one thing, um, Areti, and I and I think that this is one that has you've probably seen a, a 
a great increase in terms of how things have developed, particularly in the data side of things, is the whole concept of cloud storage and software as a service. How do you think that that has changed the way utilities operate and manage data today? From the digital utility to the virtual power plant to the digital twins, uh, how to manage your assets, I would say it has revolutionized the sector and I think it will continue doing so. To be honest, from simple tasks that we do as consumers, like move our music or our photos to the cloud, to reaching the point where we operate everything uh, for our energy efficiency in our homes and our smart homes, our smart appliance, et cetera, via the cloud, I think we need a little bit of time to reach that point. Not only the technology, I don't think the technology needs uh, the time. I think it's us, the people that are not engineers, the people that are not technicians, the people that haven't created this environment. We need to get to know it. We need to stop being afraid of it and we need to start using it. And I think that this will happen soon. I think that there is no question if it will happen. It's the same thing as with the internet. You either know how to use it and you are part of the society or you don't and you are illiterate. So I do think that the cloud will be the future for storage also and we should start learning how to use it. Of course, this digital literacy that we are all pursuing in one way or another has brought with it a whole nother unintended consequence and that is the increase in cyber crime that we've seen, particularly now, since everybody's working from home and perhaps people are a little bit distracted, their cyber hygiene perhaps is not as good as it would be in a more formal company structure. It, that has increased in itself over the course of late 2019, early 2020. What do you think are the implications going to be as we move to an increasingly digital cloud-based way of living? So what I wanted to say is that we have, it's very recent, the example with NPower, where uh, all the, let's say, via a mobile app, all the email addresses and credit card details uh, were passed to some hackers because of a successful hacking attempt. Yes, it is going to be an issue, but on the other hand, it is relatively easy to avoid things like that. I mean, I've said that in the past and I will repeat it because I really believe it. We don't need in the energy sector to reinvent the wheel. The banks have already done it for us. They have already seen where issues might occur. They have already faced a lot of cyber issues perhaps and they know with the two-step identification, for example, and things like that, we can easily, easily I use the word easily a little bit too too easy, if I may say so myself. Uh, yeah, I don't mean that it is so easy, but I think that we do have the tools to face cyber attacks. I mean, I've discussed with TSOs and they told me that they're not afraid because they're more protected than Fort Knox, for example. I've discussed with cybersecurity companies that tell me, you know what, we're here. All they have to do is utilize us. So what I think is that we already have all the tools and we already have what it takes. All we need to do is be alert because the hackers also have the tools and maybe at some point they might find something, they might find a hole, they might find a way to attack us. But I don't think it should be an obstacle towards, yes, progression. And I don't think we should really fear the hackers. I, I'm, I'm under the impression that we have this monster in our mind 
that is the hacker and has immense power and immense uh, possibilities. We shouldn't think, we should respect cybersecurity. We should respect the fact that we need to be alert and uh, careful, but we shouldn't be afraid of it. So no, I don't think it will be a problem, but it should be something that we need to take care of and we need to be alert and we need to progress in it. Kevin, anything that you'd like to add to that? To Arete's point, digitalization is not going to slow down and, and whatever you mean by that, right? And, and we've seen over the, the course of the past 12 months, digitalization means different things to different people. Some people did, you know, there's been more digitalization happening in the past 10 months in the last 10 years. But digitalization to some people was mm-hmm. they started using Zoom or getting rid of paper forms. Others were looking at commissioning entire power plants and refineries through digital twin type technology, right? So that's not going to slow down. Toretti's point, my own personal opinion, is yes, cybersecurity is a thing. It is a a feature that we have to address. It's not something that we have to go to bed at night afraid of, but it is something we all need to get better at. Toretti's point, there's a huge amount being done to protect systems. Yeah, I'm not sure I'd use the word easy. Some of that stuff is hard, but it can be done. But I go back to human nature. As clever as anybody is in protecting something, there'll be somebody out there who's just as clever. And, you know, we kind of get back to, oh, it's all technology's fault. I I suppose I kind of, if you look at a lot of the different hacks that have happened in the past, whatever, five years, a very large percentage of them have been what they'd call human engineering. Someone giving away their password using a, you know, one, two, three, four as a password, or in some cases, yes, social engineering, where new boyfriend, girlfriend decides to get the password from somebody. So that happened. That's human nature. And there mm-hmm. there are ways of hopefully addressing that. But that's one piece. Second piece is, yeah, th- there are more people sitting around with time in their hands. And like, you know, anybody who puts ransomware on a hospital system, you know, they deserve whatever they get when they're caught, because that's just human nature at its worst. Right. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. there are people who will do that. And I think then we all f- often hear about the big, the bad actors there are states out there. And, you know, if I was a president or a whatever, or a prime minister of some company, if my secret service were not out there actively trying to hack who I thought would my non-friends, I'd fire them. That's their job. So there will be state actors there. That's their job to be out there doing potentially bad things in, in the event of a war. But my personal opinion is that if there is a state actor causing chaos, which they could, then that's an act of war. That's that's a whole different ballgame. But cybersecurity is not going away. It is not a reason that we should stop digitalization or stop the future. It's unfortunately, it's a consequence of people using technology for human nature. Speaking of human nature, how has Kevin, while I've got you, I'll address this to you first. How has the role of the consumer in the energy sector changed? And how do you see that changing going further? I mean, we've seen different relationships being formed. We've seen the advent of a number of different self-generation opportunities. Where do you see it going and where does it come from? I, I suppose one of the mistakes or one of the things we often take is we talk about the average consumer. I'm not sure I've yet to meet an average consumer. We're all different. But at the same time, <laughs> through Areti's talk about big data and analytics and whatever, you can start bucketing them together in terms of segmentations or whatever. What, 10 years ago, the 99.9% of people on the planet, their interaction with an energy company was they got a bill or they paid for something at the the gas pump or petrol pump. And 
it was a you use something you paid for it. It was purely transactional. That has changed. There is a, a still only a small percentage, and it is primarily from a socioeconomic group that can afford it. Start playing into the whole prosumer and generating and virtual power plants and whatever. But the vast majority on the people, even in Western Europe or in North America, have no idea of all that right now. That's going to grow. But then if you look at the rest of the world, many parts of Asia, Africa, South America have very different problems than we have here. But I do think this concept of energy and your energy source will become more, let's say, local. People will start to kind of, they may not understand the technology or all the ins and outs of it, but it'll be kind of my energy or our energy, and it's up to us to look after it. So I, whether you call it the energy community or the microgrid, but again, we're back into kind of the technology piece, right? But I do think people will, mm -hmm. they'll take more interest in their energy, where it's coming from, what's its implications, because their kids will be asking them, is, is this good energy or bad energy. So I do think that's just going to keep evolving. We need to make sure technology doesn't get in the way, just enables it. So I do think the, our, let's say our relationship with energy will change. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Ariti? Yes, I completely, I totally agree with, with Kevin and what he said also about the average consumer. I have yet to meet one uh, too, but I would add that there is a fundamental change that happened in the last 25 years, and we owe it mainly to renewable sources. And this is the rise of the prosumer. So suddenly the consumer becomes part of this whole game. Suddenly the prosumer creates, generates electricity. And now with the help of digitalization and, and all the technologies that we fear, she can sell her surplus even. So I would say that, yes, there has been a change. It's not a huge one yet, but, but it is there. And how do you think a concept like blockchain is going to facilitate that further ability to sell your surplus, to engage in a community-driven energy future? So blockchain is, I'm a big fan of blockchain technology, but blockchain is simply an architecture, for want of a better word. And, you know, to mm. Tarety's point is that, okay, so prosumers, and again, it's still only a small percentage of, let's say, in Western Europe or North America, but it's it's a growing piece. So I have a, an electric car, I have solar on the roof, my neighbor has whatever energy store, a power wall in the, or a sun and uh, power bank in the, in the garage. And so in the world I grew up in back in the 90s and early 2000s, if you wanted to create a software system to do all that, it was kind of centralized and it was a, a big three-tier architecture with a back-end database and stuff running. The cloud didn't even exist, but it was running on a mainframe or a big computer center somewhere. And I had bits of software down at the edge. Um, roll forward to, okay, hang on a second now, we're going to make everything decentralized. So instead of going back to the cloud for everything, we'll have small little bits of software running on individual smart meters in the inverter, in the whatever, they'll chat to each other. Um, they'll look after that at the local level. So I don't need, I don't incur any of the latency issues. I don't incur more infrastructure. I don't incur more energy use for running more data centers, cloud, blah, blah, blah. And to be quite honest, a software architecture of designing that is using a distributed ledger technology like blockchain. So, so I, I think it just changes the way we think about how we architect systems and it does enable more 
decentralized systems to come into fruition. That's that's what we're kind of seeing right now with a lot of the work we're seeing from the Energy Web Foundation, Grid Singularity, Electron. You know, there's multiple companies out there. So, but again, I think we're just scratching the surface on this stuff. You know, like the, the European Union is putting together a blockchain infrastructure for all of Europe, for identity, for tracking people's education certificates. And China have had a national blockchain infrastructure rolled out with three or four years. They're, they're way ahead of us. Ritzi, anything you'd like to add to that? Yes, I agree again with Kevin. Well said. I just can't help but say that if there is one thing that worries me a little bit is not the technology per se, but the way it might be used. And what I fear is that it will become a tool for the elites a tool that will not be accessible to each and every one of us, even though that is precisely its role, to be accessible to everybody, so to be a sort of forum, a market in the ancient meaning of the both the word forum and market. This is the only mm -hmm. thing. And I wanted to ask you, Kevin and, and Claire, if you guys agree with me, because blockchain has been divinified, if that is the word, a little bit, but we <laughs> fail sometimes to see, let's say, the, the issues that the social, economic, and ethical issues that might rise from it. What do you, what do you guys think? Like any technology already, it can be used for good and bad. And some people will see it as good and some will see it as bad. I, I suppose a couple of things. I would disagree that blockchain can be used to disenfranchise people. It's a technology. And, and I'll come back to that in a second. But the other thing is, is that I think a lot of people think blockchain today and they think Bitcoin or they think cryptocurrencies. That's a whole different ballgame in terms of energy consumption, social divide, the haves that have nots and whatever. I, I, I'll come back to blockchain is simply a programming model. And I know a lot of people would say oh, it's more than that, but it, it's a programming model. And put it this way, if I have some of the latest smart meters rolled out from the likes of ITRON or others, anywhere in, in any country, they allow me to run software apps in a partitioned part of the smart meter. Now, most consumers don't know what a partition is, but I potentially can drop a piece of software over the wire into that partition on behalf of some company that I've signed up with that'll kind of do all this stuff that we call virtual power plants and energy trading and whatever. And all I have is an app and I can be from any social economic group and I can sign up for that. I don't need to buy anything new. I have a smart meter as a piece of software over the wire and I have an app on my phone. So I, I actually think blockchain technology used in the right way with the right market model, with the right whatever, actually will enable a lot more prosumers, for want of a better word, without having to go out and buy an EV or buy a lot of expensive kit, which blocks a lot of people right now. That's, that's my two cents. I do wonder if it might not, because of the fact that in many cases, it doesn't necessarily need a middleman to facilitate some of the transactions, if it doesn't mean that it might actually enable people to be more involved in this energy community in a way that perhaps they couldn't afford to otherwise, you know, so instead of being able to necessarily generate your own power, it does mean that if your neighbor's doing it, you could maybe buy renewable power from him. So I actually, to be honest, hadn't thought about the ethics of blockchain as a technology. So well, uh, it, you've caught and, me as a bit of a, had a bit of a disadvantage here. And if I may, Claire, you know, we talk about blockchain because you have 
idiots like me, time about, oh, look at this cool technology with the last three or four years. To be quite honest, blockchain will have arrived as a foundational piece of software architecture, ways of architecting systems, when we stop talking about it. And, and what I mean by that is today you go out and you talk to smart, you talk to consumers, the average person in pick a country in Western Europe, and you talk about energy and they talk about their bill and they may say, oh yeah, we have a smart meter. Ask them what software architecture is running that meter, how it communicates back to the big cloud in the sky, blah, blah. They have no clue. They don't need to know. And, and yet we're assuming yeah, that everybody should know about blockchain. You know, it, it's like, it's idiots like me that are confusing things. The, the sooner, because there's a lot of things happening in other industries today, supply chains, banking, uh, insurance, they're all starting to use blockchain. But I, I don't get a, um, here's your house insurance and we're using blockchain as part of the flyer, right? <laughs> <laughs> if you did, we would be having a different conversation. I, you know, hey, idiots like me confuse things. So that's one of the features. <laughs> so I wanted to ask something before we move on to the final question. And this is not about what has changed over the past 25 years, but it's more a case of what hasn't changed. So what are the things that we saw 25 years ago that are still a part of our landscape? And that can be positive or negative. You know, when I was thinking about this, I was kind of thinking about, well, it's great. I mean, there's been a lot of change. There's been the introduction of sort of prepaid metering, and then it moved to remote metering, and then it was bi-directional automatic meter reading, and now it's smart meters, which in some cases could literally tell if you're making a cup of coffee. But at the same time, there are things that haven't changed at all. I mean, you know, if I think about it, things like the need to still protect revenue. So what does that say about, I guess there's a social element to this question as well, but the fact that people are still feeling that their energy bills are too high. What about, for instance, the challenges around financial viability of utilities in places like Africa and other developing economies, or the fact that the number of people who have no access to electricity is still too high. So, I mean, these were just some of the things that came to mind when I was thinking about this. And I just wanted to get an idea from, from you, Areti, to start with what you had looked at that you thought would perhaps change. And actually, it has been a case of the more things change, the more they say the same. Yeah. Energy poverty, you, you said it. That is the number one thing that I would assume and I would hope that it would have changed in the in the past 25 years, but it hasn't. And then you get a pandemic in the mix like COVID-19 and you see how important energy is and you see how important simple things like keeping your lights on are. And then you think that not everybody is privileged enough to have this. So this is one thing that really makes me very, very unhappy and shocks me a little bit. I will not lie when I think about it. Mm. And the second thing is how different the situations are within a country. But when I say country, I mean the United States, for example, where every state has a different point of view regarding electricity, etc. Or the European Union, where every state is at a different level of progress regarding electricity. I would have hoped that 
for example, in Greece or in, in Spain, we would be as green as people in Estonia, but that's not the case. And that also makes me a little bit sad. Sorry, I had negative things to say. Mm. Well, I do tend to agree with you. I mean, one of the things that I'm working on an article at the moment around the power sector in Africa in particular, and one of the things that I was kind of sad to see was that despite lots of very grand plans, there's so many of them, in fact, too many of them that have just not been delivered on. And I guess, you know, like you, I would have hoped that things would have changed by now. Kevin, what about from your perspective? So I suppose I'll start with, I think they're all positive because I, I have three things. I think they're all positive for different reasons. That being a technology guy, I do think what has changed a lot is the embrace of different technologies, trying different things, the, the innovation. And even like wind and solar, like some of those technologies have been around for decades, but now we've got kind of whatever, we can use them at scale and then that. So I think the what's very positive is our ability to adapt, improve, build on, use, integrate new technologies. And and like with all of the new technology that's been implemented in cybersecurity and then and, and, and all the challenges, you know, I would say whether it's oil and gas or whether it's utilities, apart from, unfortunately, the usual natural disasters of hurricanes or fires or whatever during the pandemic energy stayed flowing so the energy industry mm. deserves a lot of credit for that because they had challenges as well with people and everything else two things that have not changed one is the laws of physics so electrons still do what electrons do regardless of what we try to do with them so that <laughs> hasn't changed so some of the complexity we try and build in in terms of market models and we think we live on a copper plate and it'll be all free market and yeah, 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 yeah. you still have electrons flowing through copper cables and, and the laws of physics haven't changed but that hasn't changed and that won't change even if we get into wireless power the laws of physics hasn't changed and for those of you that know me you know i keep coming back to this technology is the easy bit Human nature hasn't changed we evolve and i hope human nature doesn't change too much but one can turn around and look at some of the fun and games that goes on with geopolitics around energy. And it's not a technology discussion. It's about how do I get one up on my neighbor? How do I maintain my state in the world? Mm. Unfortunately, in different parts of the world, and this is in every country in the world, you get things like corruption and people do things for vested interests and making money or they honestly believe they're right and they'll stop something else and blah, blah, blah. So human nature, right? We, we, we don't all agree on the same things at the same time. And the pandemic has shown us that as well. But yet we keep striving. Human nature keeps striving to do better. And I do think we'll model our way through it. Not, no one technology is going to fix it. But two things haven't changed. Laws of physics and human nature. So I think given uh, we've had a fairly wide ranging and meandering conversation, but perhaps to bring it to a central closing point. At the end of 2019, there was news that came out of China about a flu that was quite catchy and potentially of interest for the rest of the world. Come mid first quarter of 2020, of course, we were all looking at that virus with a completely different perspective. So I just wanted to get some thoughts, Kevin, from you on how COVID-19 has 
not only, I guess, changed the way we engage with the energy sector, but has it had an impact on the energy transition in a noticeable way, either immediately or in the near to mid future? It has, in my opinion, it has. I think in the more, let's say, again, harping back to the technology side, I think a lot of people figured out by just getting stuff done that more digitalization was better than less. The cloud wasn't as bad a thing as they thought it was because they started using it. So I think there was some immediate things that happened to say we need to use technology to get around some of the challenges we have right now. Keep the lights on, keep the energy flowing. I can't physically go there. How do I how do I fix something? So I think Mm -hmm. that has accelerated that and that's not slowing down. What do I think it's going to do long term? I do think and this was probably happening before COVID, but the whole concept of globalization and just in time, that's changing forever. I think countries, Europe, US, everybody is starting to look at their supply chains and looking at their dependence on other countries, rightly or wrongly, for raw materials, for energy, for food, for whatever. So I think we're going to have a push for more self-sufficiency. I think a lot of that is going to accelerate what we call the circular economy, You know, whether it's recycling for rare earths, whether it's lithium. Can we use carbon capture to make graphene to build wind turbines in the Atlantic instead of using steel that we import from somewhere else? I think that has now suddenly thrown all of that onto the table where it's this is worth a discussion. And I think that's changed forever. I guess the one challenge, of course, with more of that localization is that it is going to push up costs, particularly in the short to medium term. You know, I mean, if everything is being produced on a smaller scale for a more localized market, you don't have the same economies of scale as if you are a global producer of a specific technology. Do you think that that's going to impact the speed of how we transition or do you think that we'll just sort of take it in stride? Oh, if I if I knew the answer to that one, I'd, I'd be laughing. Um, You'd be a rich man. <laughs> oh, I'd be. I'd have retired years ago. <laughs> I, I declare it's very valid. Um, one of the sectors I spend some time in now is around, say, the offshore wind. And th- that's a big question. You need local content. You need local steel, recycled steel. That's pushing up the costs. Mm-hmm. I think that is inevitable. I think that is, and if it's packaged the right way, in terms of it's pushing up costs, but it's also creating jobs in the local economy. And if any politician or anybody starts talking about this is too expensive and I need cheaper energy, it's like, well, fine, I'll tell you what. So whatever, we'll get the cheap and cheerful version of anything. We'll import it from somewhere else. And when your kids grow up and they have no jobs to go to, you can explain to them that you just want the cheaper energy, right? I, that, that's my simple thing. Mm-hmm. I just think that I think it's in our strategic interest as different regions, countries, whatever, plus the whole circular economy starts getting rid of emissions. Now it'll create other emissions, but we need to capture them and blah, blah, blah. But I think it's, you know, for years it was just like, where's the cheapest place in the planet I can get this done? And that worked very well for us in many industries and look at all the gadgets and stuff we have. But I do think we're now starting Mm. to look at that and say, hang on a second. Maybe we need to think this out a few years longer than just about what's the cheapest thing I can get today. It's hard, right? There's going to be a lot of lot of politics making a lot of noise about this far against sideways over the next X amount of years. But mm. um, I, I think I think it's changed the discussion, even for food. I think it's changed the discussion with local farmers and stuff. And now if 
this this crisis will pass and in a year's time when we're going oh i remember covid yeah whatever before we got this wonder drug or something maybe we all go back to the same old ways i don't know i live in hope that we won't but um i think that energy security self-sufficiency circular economy we need to create jobs we need to create wealth for our own countries instead of giving it to somebody else call it protectionism is the, is the bad way of saying it but i i do think we're going to see a lot more of that yeah, it's funny, you know, when you, you were talking about that, I was thinking about what that meant for, say, African economies or countries in Latin America or in parts of Asia. And the fact that in many cases, a lot of their decisions are made based on price and whether or not they perhaps have the luxury of that, I can't say insular look because it's it's not that, but that slightly more local content focused perspective. So, yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I think this is a conversation that is probably a whole nother discussion because it can be something that be, can be quite emotive and I think also is going to have many, many different opinions around this. Something we didn't mention so far is that I think another fundamental shift that's going on is the whole thing around finance and the ESG impact. And that's linked back to circular mm-hmm. economy, sustainability. You know, if you're following EU politics right now, the whole EU sustainable taxonomy, hypothetically, if they come out and say it's 100 grams per equivalent kilowatt hour, uh, if you're over that of carbon emissions, then you're not sustainable. That means every gas power plant in Europe is not sustainable from a financial perspective. That's like turning off the nukes. And you know what? We'd probably figure it out. Now, there'd be political uproar and chaos and whatever, but we'd figure it out. To your point, in certain Mm. parts of Africa and Asia and whatever, but like, what's the alternative? They should just buy all their wind turbines and solar farms from Chinese, European and American companies. So then they're just you're hollowing out their economy straight away. So I do think we'll start to see more investment in more renewable facilities, building local stuff. But for somewhere like India, you know, yeah, they're still building power plants because they need to give their people power back to energy poverty. And it's completely unrealistic of us to turn around and say, oh, you should use more wind turbines. You know, it's going to take decades. Um, Ariti, maybe you would like to have the last word on on COVID-19 and its implications. Yes, I just I want to finish with something positive, even though I agree with you and Kevin totally on everything you you said. And even though. Personally, I'm not that optimistic. I do fear that we will go back to business as usual because we can't afford not to, unfortunately. But I want to finish, as I said, with a positive thing. And this is that I think that this pandemic actually show to people that new technologies are actually on our sides and they're here to help. So the more I talk with people that are not in the sector, the more I hear that, you know what, the energy sector did very well. We had no issues with our electricity, mainly. We had no issues with communicating with our loved ones that are far away from us. But thank God we had electricity, we had internet, we could do things like that. I had, for example, my mother learning how to use Skype for other things than only talk to me. I mean, she started sending messages and pictures to me. So I would say a positive thing is that people are embracing new technologies. People are embracing uh, the possibilities that the new technologies are bringing. And maybe, maybe they start fearing them a little bit less. And that to me is a great win.
Mm. I managed during the beginning of the pandemic to teach a friend of ours who is German how to use WhatsApp. And in my very, very broken, not very good German, so I figure <laughs> we've all learned a, a plethora of new skills right. and realized abilities we didn't know we had. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's a win, guys. That's um, a win. And yes, I think at the beginning of the pandemic, we ran in conjunction with the Inlet Europe team and uh, a lot of our colleagues from around the world, a series of webinars in which we looked at what utilities around the world were doing to address the pandemic. And the one thing that has come out of it, perhaps more than anything else, and to end on that positive note that you were talking about, is to just say that utilities, despite the fact that they have always operated in a fairly conservative manner, managed the shift to a completely new way of working completely seamlessly. And the respect that I feel for them now is exactly the same as it was when that shift was made because they just embraced it. And I guess we all learned that, as you say, change is not necessarily something to be feared. On that note, all that is left to say now is thank you to Kevin Anaretti for sharing your insights with me. Our conversation has made me feel even more excited about the future of the energy industry. Speaking of the future, this is my last episode as the host of the Smart Energy International podcast. I'm handing over the baton to Areti as the new editor of Smart Energy International. I'll be continuing my journey as the content director of Inlet Africa, so I'm sure our paths will cross again. For now, for more podcasts, you can visit the Smart Energy International website on smart-energy.com. Do be sure to tune in again soon for more conversations and insights into the things that really matter to our industry. Mm -hmm.